Well, thank you very much, and thank you very much for the invitation to come down to this rather beautiful part of the world. When you live in Gauteng, it's always very different when you come down and see some mountains. It really, what a pleasure. Say nothing of the wine. Um, topic tonight, probably something that you haven't spent a lot of time thinking about, but let me ask the question. I'm going to talk about things like national systems of innovation. How many of you actually know that there is such a thing in South Africa? That's what I thought. <laughs> Interestingly enough, 1994, the first policy which affects science, engineering, technology and innovation was published by government to say South Africa is creating a national system of innovation. So you're part of it, you just don't know you're part of it. But don't feel alone, because I think most people don't know they're part of it. And that's part of what I want to try and get across tonight is, what is this concept? Why is innovation important? And particularly, I think, a role that your skill can bring to this, this party. And there's... An interesting phrase, you know, when you start something, as I said, we have a national system of innovation on paper. And I thought Henry Ford's quote was quite relevant. You can't build a reputation on what you're going to do. Fifteen years later, I think we're still going to have a national system of innovation. And if it's not functional, then in fact all those good policies are irrelevant. And I think that's, that's what we want to explore tonight, is why are those policies important and why should we play? Now, the other, the other factor is that the world is definitely moving to both business and all aspects of life are more knowledge-driven. There's much higher knowledge content in just about every activity that you encounter. And... We use a lot of these words like a knowledge-driven society. And when you ask people, what is that? They all say, hmm, well, I think I know. And in fact, it's, these are difficult concepts, but we never define them. Same with innovation. In Gauteng, maybe, you know, it'll come to the West Cape, maybe you've got it already. Every poster board on the side of the road, every company in their strategy says, we are an innovative company. This is the vogue word at the moment. Every strategy document has got these words in them. When you ask the people what does that mean, you get as many answers as there are people. So the concept and the word has become a cliche without us understanding that it actually is important in our everyday life. So I want to look at that. I want to look at the impact of this on competitiveness, and then I want to explore a little bit the role and importance of engineers in facilitating innovation processes and a particular model that somebody has proposed, which I think may be highly relevant to systems engineers because I think you have a particular view of the world which, which um, is different from many of the other engineers. So I'm interested in your feedback as well to say this model looks like it's something important for us to discuss. And then just some observations. So if you look at the official national priorities over the many years, 
You started after the Second World War with basically reconstructing the country. Resource beneficiation in the 50s and 60s. You know, the bad news is resource beneficiation is still the main topic of DTI right now. I don't think we learned a thing from all the efforts in the 50s and 60s. I was part of the, the original drive to set up materials environments in South Africa. CSR was a big player. We didn't succeed in much beneficiation. The question is, we're going to start it all over again, and I guess we're going to repeat all the same mistakes. And that's, that's worry. Anyway, 70s and 80s, security, defense, and import replacement. I think many of the systems engineers got involved in that particular cycle. Then global reintegration came along. The first 10 years of that, people were starting to reposition things. Reposition, some industries disappeared altogether. Others started to grow. But currently, our sort of national policy is around social and economic development and the knowledge economy. And more and more in government papers, you see this idea that South Africa must become a knowledge economy. What does that mean? I'm sure the people that wrote it don't know what it means, but it looks like you're keeping up with the rest of the world. Reality is, we better find out what it means. So here we go. What is a knowledge economy? Well, knowledge economy is where knowledge is the product or the productive asset. And it's really an extension of this information society. And the big thing is the old industrial economy rules don't apply to this anymore. It's very different. And we'll see a few of those later. It's much more globalized because knowledge travels. The internet is obviously the glue. It allows knowledge to travel. So, you know, years ago it took weeks to get a letter back from somebody if, if you were lucky. Now it's a case of instantaneous. You can Skype the person, you can do all sorts of things, and it's instantaneous. You can be talking to anybody in the world instantaneously. Very different. Yeah? <laughs> What's a letter? <laughs> Then you get a knowledge-based economy, and it's slightly different, where knowledge is a tool. Usually, that knowledge is multidisciplinary, and that's a very important phrase. We, again, use it often, but I don't see any of our institutions really taking it too seriously. Our universities are still monodisciplinary. Our training is monodisciplinary. So when you get to multidisciplinary, nobody can talk to each other. Using knowledge to produce economic benefit as well as job creation. So that's using knowledge as opposed to, if you like, marketing knowledge. So they're slightly different. When we say we're going to get a knowledge economy, I'm not sure exactly which one we are planning to get. But I think the lower one, the knowledge-based, is slightly easier than the upper one to achieve. Right, so what are the differences? Well, the first one is, you know, when you dig raw materials out of the ground, which we're pretty good at, raw materials are a reducing resource. They're going to go away. Gauteng used to have something called a gold industry. It's almost gone. Knowledge 
actually is not an issue of scarcity, but rather of abundance. And you know, when you use knowledge and share knowledge, you also get knowledge back. So knowledge actually grows with use as opposed to reducing with use. Very interesting concept. So the more you interact and share, the more the knowledge pool grows. So it's not a resource of scarcity, but rather one of abundance. It's not depleted by use. Secondly, location becomes less important. You can run a business now where you're not at the location where it's happening. So you can interact internationally around something without actually ever getting together. So in the knowledge game, this idea of geography has changed. Secondly, there is evidence. Stellenbosch is a good example. Business clusters and centers of knowledge like universities and research establishments can develop into something rather special. Can. They don't necessarily go that way. It depends on the culture that's developed in the area. But clearly, places like Boston with MIT and Harvard and so on, Silicon Valley with Stanford and, and et cetera, et cetera, those are places where this interaction is part of life. Secondly, if you have knowledge-enhanced products, they achieve premium prices. It's interesting comment about with Steve Jobs passing away. Apple actually never did any basic research for any of their products. They integrated very, very cleverly what other people had done. Interesting. They happen to be, I think, the most successful company in the world right now. They never developed any of the components themselves. Knowledge is also a risk. It's transportable. It's in people's heads. So a company can say, gee, we've got all this brilliant knowledge. But if a small number of people vanish, they might actually have Zippo. And a knowledge management system may help to record what you used to know. But we all know that you can't apply knowledge if you don't understand it. So you can record it, you can try to systematize it, but when the, when the person who intellectually deals with that knowledge goes, it's mostly lost. So in a, in a knowledge society, looking after people becomes a fundamental success factor. Human capital, people become very important. And also communication is fundamental. Your goals of Incozi, sharing knowledge, growing knowledge, brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Those relate directly to this idea of connecting and letting knowledge flow. Maybe we wait because there's, some of it may be answered. This is a picture of what people see as, as the new economic growth model in, in the world in the coming years. You've still got capital and labor, but you've got a much greater emphasis now on education, research, and technology, leading to know-how, knowledge, and innovation, which leads to the future range of, of products. Now, 
we need to analyze where are we. We talk about a national system of innovation. A national system of innovation supports this kind of model. So we'll explore later how good are we. And tonight is a bit of therapy, all right? Okay, what are the drivers? Typically, markets and products are more global. I think we know that. Products launched in America, the new iPhone comes out in California. It's probably here within a week. If it was allowed to be, it would be here within a week. Um, things happen very fast. Um, the products really are global products. You're not dealing with you know, the US equivalent version and we get a, a different one. In the developed world, they, they estimate now that 70% of workers have a strong knowledge content in what they're doing, i.e. the education and putting the education to use has become not just something that is desirable, it's become essential. <coughs> the next point I want to highlight, because things are moving so fast, the idea of single individuals being all-knowing you know, the old model of a professor being like a god. He knew more than everybody else. Students would go, ha, ah. ha, Okay? doesn't exist anymore. It's now much more collective intelligence, pooling the knowledge of a range of people to take you up to another level. So this idea of collective intelligence, you'll see a lot more of this idea of collaboration, collective work, as fundamental to the, the next few decades. We all know time to market does not allow products and services to take long to develop. That's one of our problems when you'll see later when we start with this philosophy, you know, we're going to start a research program. By the time we finish the first phase of the research program, somebody else has already done it three times. Okay? So time to market is important. If you've got a good idea, You've got to get it out there very quickly. And the internet, of course, allows you to take things internationally. Now, the, the reasons why this is the era where I grew up, 1700 might be a little bit early, but not much. Um, <laughs> over 300 years, things moved fairly slowly. As I said, you wrote letters and you, know, you published something and it would take a year to appear in print and everything was kind of slow and, and so on. The next issue that came along was this information society, which basically happened over about a 30-year period and radically changed things. But you are now systems engineers working on integrating systems. The news is that you've got something called the bioeconomy coming your way. How much about that did you learn in your training so far? Got some bad news for you. The nano economy is just around the corner. How much do you know about that? And then, of course, we got the whole energy crunch coming with all new technology floating out. And all of these things are now sort of happening simultaneously. They're not spread uh, 300 years apart. So the knowledge era means that life is just more complicated and more fast-moving. Now, think of it from your perspective, you're in an integrative mode. You put things together, you have a big picture. 
the big picture could have content about which you know absolutely nothing. How do you deal with it? Right. Now, the big thing about a knowledge economy, and if you think of the mode we're in in South Africa, we still tend to think we drive the world. It has to be developed here. Okay? Let's just have a look at a few realities. Okay, here's a map which has been scaled according to the contribution to scientific growth. Uh, does anybody notice anything missing? <laughs> okay. Africa was on diet when this was made. All right. So if you're in the knowledge economy, and if you are basing your systems that you're developing on research, is the local content adequate to produce a global quality product? I don't think so. You hear a lot about scientific publications and patents. The whole Southern Hemisphere looks a little uh, empty. You'll notice Cape Town's got something for scientific publications, so you get a... Kharteng didn't make it. Um, so the point is that you are integrate, you've got to integrate now with this global source of knowledge. And your contribution, if you're in the research game, is a small part of what's happening out in the world. But when you're in business trying to produce the best you can, if you limit yourself to what you get locally, it's probably not enough. Here's another one. U.S. companies investing in R&D in other countries. What's missing? I helped you a bit at the top. Okay? And what's scary about this is South America, not unlike Africa to some extent, 17%. Malaysia, Indonesia, we are part of rest of the world. That's a pretty scary place to be. Even Oz doesn't do too great at 4%, but we don't, we don't even score. So again, perception is the research that's being done in South Africa is not attracting other world players to co-invest in that research. This is therapeutic, you know. I mean, when you look at this, it's a reality check. We shouldn't be ashamed of it. We're still doing some jolly good stuff. But the fact of the matter is, we can't do everything, and maybe we spread ourselves far too thin without focusing on areas that are of real benefit to our development. Now let's look at innovation, this magic word. If I asked you all to write your definition of innovation on a piece of paper, it would be very interesting reading. I won't ask you. Okay, but I will tell you what it's not. First of all, why is it important? And I like this. This was Cully Pistorius in his days at, at Naki who, who take, took a few quotes. The disturbing regularity with which industrial leaders follow their core technologies into obsolescence and, and obscurity. <laughs> because they don't see the benefits, vested interests, resistance to change, complacency. You know, it's interesting. When, when Tom Porter wrote his original book on diamonds and all that good stuff, he quoted a whole bunch of the top 
100 companies. If you check that now, most of them don't exist anymore. Maybe this message should have been made aware. So if companies are locked in, then in fact they can go out of business. So what is innovation? The most important thing, if you go away with nothing else tonight, this sentence, it is not invention. Okay? Everybody at the CSR, please take note. Okay. The reason being, for something to be an innovation, it's got to take the ideas right to the market. If it's a social innovation, that means right to society. Until the rubber hits the road, it's a good idea. This is fundamentally a big gap in South Africa. Most people are convinced that when they've got as far as a patent, they have an innovation. Wrong. They have a patent. They've just spent a whole bunch of money. They have not got an innovation. So until we get this definition into people's heads, and I picked on the CSR because they have now the goal of impact. Now, impact means beyond innovation, actually. It means you've not only got it to the market, but it's done something really good. And their definition currently in most people's heads is invention. So there's quite a big gap between the perception of what they're doing and the end point. And I'm sure if we went to most of our universities and most players in the country, they wouldn't understand this because the word never gets defined. The other one, which I'm going to really try to persuade you is not right, is that innovation happens by starting everything as basic research and then applied research and then commercialization and so on. The world doesn't work like that. Now, I, I think I'm preaching to the converted. I hope I'm preaching to the converted. Because that is still the model that our entire science and engineering and technology structure is built around. That's how the funding is managed. That's how it is perceived. Few more definitions. You're going to get a copy of this. You can digest them. This is one I like. Okay? Invention is putting money in to get knowledge out. And innovation is putting knowledge in to get money out. Okay? Nice and simple. People in business love this one because I think it's true. Okay? And it explains the subtle difference. This is a model which is much more like the reality of the way the world works. Your scientific research feeds into a global pool of knowledge. The people who are working at the bottom, who are actually producing new goods and services, they don't only draw on this. The research does not only feed that block. The knowledge feeds the entire spectrum. Every aspect is drawing on knowledge from that pool. So when the idea has to go, for example, into, a, into invention and conception, you know, there's all sorts of technologies that people use to model that, to, to make prototypes, to do all sorts of things. When it's actually going into production, the whole production engineering cycle is drawing on the latest knowledge, the latest technology. So it doesn't 
makes sense to say it starts with research and it kind of feeds in that end and it, the rest happens. Because the rest doesn't happen. And that's part of our problem. That the part at the bottom doesn't happen. part at the top happens. So that's a model that I find reflects reality much better. And if you accept that that model and some variant of it is closer to the truth than this linear thing, it changes the way you have to structure the whole system to deliver. Another one which I think is important is that items get created, often with a patent. The product, the whole process of production is de-risking that product, lowering the risk of all aspects. It then goes into commercial production. Hopefully somebody makes a profit. It gets purchased. And how many people then adapt the product and produce a new product based on the original one, which feeds back? So you get a different cycle. Who are the players in this game? They all, every step in this process, draws again from that pool of knowledge. But this cycle is much more the production people, the, uh, the people who actually design products, and the people who use them. So it's a different group of people. But all of them depend on having access to information and knowledge. So some of the key elements of an innovation society is you have to enhance the number of people innovating. You have to uh, have appropriate knowledge and to use it for value creation. So you've got to have access to the knowledge generators. But if we constrain ourselves only to use ideas we generate, then that limits us. You can take ideas from anywhere. You adapt them and you work with them. And again, this idea of collective creativity. New concepts. I don't know how many of you have heard of open innovation. Interesting concept. Um, few companies started in America in the pharmaceutical industry. Procter & Gamble started the game. They said, we spend, I think the figure was, I don't know, $20 billion a year on research, something like that. I think it's even more. Um, the CEO said, we don't have all the knowledge we need to produce our new products. We need to go outside of our company. I'm going to spend 30% of our budget outside the company. That probably didn't thrill their research team, but he stuck with it. And the company's profitability shot up. How does it work? There are companies now, and they set up the first one, Innocentive, and there's another one called uh, um, Six Sigma, which operates, actually, they have a branch in Pretoria, which says if you have a technological problem, you can actually put that as a question to what they call problem solvers, of which there are many millions who have signed up as potential problem solvers from all over the world. You put a price tag to your question, and whoever comes up with a solution gets the money. But it's based on people having the solution now. There's no opportunity for saying, we'll start a research program. You either can do it or you can't do it. Harvard did a, a study on this, and they took a set of questions from an industry which industry could not solve. 
They put it on one of these systems. 30% of the problems were solved within three weeks. Okay, because you're tapping into essentially a worldwide scope. The one I always like was a, was a problem that a, a, a pharmaceutical company had of putting fluoride powder into a, into a toothpaste tube. And the problem was that the fluoride powder was getting all over the plant because they couldn't contain it. They couldn't solve this because they were dominantly chemistry-based. That was their strength. They put it on the system, and some chap who was well-retired, sitting in his garage, said, well, why don't you charge the tube positive, charge the powder negative, and all the powder's going to go into the tube. He got $10,000. They made a fortune. They would never have got to that conclusion because that wasn't their skills base. So open innovation is something we better be aware of. We don't use it in this country. Eskom has just launched its first five projects on the open innovation platform to see whether they can actually solve these problems. Crowdsourcing is another one. If you're in the business of, of components that are for a, a wide population, somebody like Nokia, they held a conference in Kenya in November 2010. I was fortunate enough to go to it. They had people from every country in Africa looking at what should mobile telephony look like to help Africa's development. They had three or four hundred people there discussing this for a week. Fascinating. You know, it, it's not, it hasn't really been done before. Not only that, they now have an active website where all those people are, are members of it, if you like, and they can continue the process onwards. Again, something new, something I don't think we've even thought of yet. I'm going to leave that with you. Have a look. The difference between a sort of closed and open innovation system, when you look at the talk, there's some food for thought. Now, some of the realities. I said innovation links to competitiveness, and I think if we want to understand competitiveness, very quickly I'm going to highlight just some of the areas where we are as a country. The countries tend to get divided into three categories, resource-driven economies, investment-driven economies, and knowledge-driven economies. And the big difference is the first one is raw materials, dig it out the ground, you don't have much technology, you import it. The middle one is you actually have the capability of upgrading technology. And the last one, you start actually building from your own base. Three countries in Africa, no, let me, three countries in Africa have made it to stage two. South Africa, Namibia, and Tunisia. Okay? That means we are being judged under these efficiency enhancers. Now let's have a look at where we are. 142 countries got surveyed or got analyzed. The kind of questions in, in the basic area, it's your institutions, your infrastructure, your macroeconomy, your health and primary education. The middle one, it's higher education, market efficiency, labor efficiency, financial market sophistication, technology readiness, market size. And the last one is business sophistication and innovation. So let's see where we are. Well, overall, we are 50 out of 142. 
And just for comparison, I put three countries in Africa down, 40 and 54, Mauritius and Tunisia. Interesting, Mauritius is progressing extremely fast at the moment. It's doing extremely well. Um, it's, it's progressing, but if you look at the bottom, Malaysia and Indonesia, well ahead of us. They were not ahead of us a few years ago. And we are now part of the BRIC countries, Brazil and India, very similar to us. Very much the same sort of countries. Now, on the basic elements, there we are. We are 79th on the basic elements. Brazil and India also quite low. But the two elements that we are really something not to be proud of, primary education, that we are ranked at 125, and health, we are ranked at 129 out of 142. Okay? So we talk about grand challenges. Maybe we should be looking at these lists to say what are the real grand challenges. On the efficiency enhancers, we actually are quite good. Our banking system is actually, our financial system is ranked as ninth in the world. That's an incredible achievement. So we, we score pretty well here. We, we are, but India and Brazil, still in the same ballpark. Obviously, there are different measures. Where do we come down in this category? What holds us back? The one in red, internet usage. I think we all know the reason for that. But the reality is, if we're going to play in the knowledge economy, what's the one element that's absolutely fundamental to the knowledge economy? It's the ability to connect. To Okay? So we're shooting ourselves in the foot. Another grand challenge? Hmm. Higher education? Tertiary enrollment, 97th. Quality of the educational system, 133rd. And maths and science, core to your business, 138 out of 142. And I saw some data the other day. You know in these, in these tests they do. We are now the lowest in the whole African continent. Not the rest of the world. In Africa. Now think of how many poverty-stricken countries there are in Africa. We are lower than them in terms of our kids' ability in maths and science. Grand challenges, folks. You know, we, we, we talk about all these grandiose plans. These are the fundamentals. And these are absolutely fundamental to a knowledge economy. Just about every category we've listed here as a weakness is fundamental to the strategy which has been, dictated, which has been chosen. Innovation. We actually come out very well, 39th. On innovation, 41, but on, on that whole category of, of, of innovation and business sophistication factors, 39th. Again, Brazil and India are about the same. So if I look at the number of things, for example, that India is achieving in terms of new products, new technologies, new things coming out of the door, and Brazil. I don't know. I don't believe the numbers. I, think, I, I don't think we're scoring. I don't think we've got the same fighting weight. They're much bigger countries, much bigger populations. 
But on paper, we come out similar. Reality, I'm not, I'm not sure. And here are the categories that make that up. Interestingly enough, university industry collaboration is seen as very high. Now, my sort of gut tells me that it's not as high as that. I think projects like Thrip, for example, is very popular with business and I think is a very successful program. And that might be seen as the interaction. But Thrip is not really around the knowledge that's being generated, but the people that are being generated. So I don't know how to interpret that. But for example, quality of scientific research is high. Company spending on R&D is good. Government procurement of advanced technology, 103. Availability of scientists and engineers, 111. Ties back to some of those earlier problems. But at least we know which are the factors. If we're going to be a knowledge economy, we start to at least understand what do we have to focus attention on. So systems of innovation. I think this one, I, I'm not going to labor it, but what I like about this is if you look at these definitions, this is a Canadian one. Successful innovation is considered as the result of a process of interaction and exchange of knowledge involving a large diversity of actors in situations of interdependence. Now simply that says it's the combined effort of people adding their skills together that leads to an innovative society. And the second one is important. Something that if you've come from an engineering or a technical background, it says they may lay more emphasis on the strategic importance of relationships rather than technical tools or te and knowledge rather than technology networks. So think about it. In order to collaborate, it's much more a human interaction issue than a technical issue. And I hate to say it, I'm a scientist, you're engineers. I don't think we have great people skills often. Okay? We have baseball bat skills. So we've got to think very carefully about this. In an innovation society, there's a lot more ability for people to interact and, and accept other people's views. And it's something we have to think deeply about. Because the, the drivers of innovation are not necessarily just your technical knowledge. Working in teams. Are we good at that? Maybe you guys are better than most. But most South Africans don't work so well in teams. We work well in silos. Right. Also, the whole organization has to change to reflect these sort of paradigms. So as I say, compliments to your INCOSA because you have a lot of those elements in there. The words that you've got up on your boards and your slides actually symbolize an intent. Just remember Henry Ford. Okay, I'll leave this. You can read it. A few other things. But who are the key actors in an innovation system? I'm starting with business at the top. By definition, if it happens, an innovation is when something reaches the market. The fundamental element is business. Therefore, innovation systems should be driven by business. Government is there to produce an environment in which innovation can happen. 
And knowledge generators are the third component who produce many of the new ideas that the other two can support to take through. But more and more, and particularly in countries like ours, that's called the triple helix. You often hear that phrase. We have to look at society. In a country like ours, we have to start to say this thing must impact on society. So that is what the innovation system has to... Those are the components. But it's a cultural issue. It's less about the hard science and engineering and much more about how we do things. You can read some of these, but part of the problem I think we have is that we use the words, but we don't really live them. Now, here is the classic diagram by which the entire country rests. It was in the research strategy of 2002, and the complaint was local research goes into a global pool, industry draws from the global pool. Well, I think the model I'm saying might actually be exactly that. Industry is going to draw from the global pool because actually that's where the relevant knowledge may reside. And if our researchers are not in some way talking to these people and doing relevant research, it isn't going to change. So for years and years and years, people have been struggling to say, how do we fix this? And, you know, we've got the Technology Innovation Agency now in the gap between the two whose role it is to draw the two together. The fact is that we have to really understand how does life work and how do you get the research community to be relevant to the people on the right-hand side. And that's the most important thing. And that's where I'll come back to later because I think engineers have a particular role there. But this innovation system tends to have three layers. It tends to have a policy layer. It has a micro layer at the bottom, which is actually the knowledge generators, business, and everybody else. And then it has people who kind of help policy to be implemented. And in many countries, a lot of effort has gone into defining those players. So, for example, Science parks in many countries are used as one of the middle layers here. The people there facilitate interactions, but they don't have an axe to grind. They're not part of the final product. They're just facilitators. So we have very few organizations that facilitate people at the micro level getting together. And if you think about it, if... Somebody from a university or a research place goes into a businessman. I can assure you the first thing he says when he looks at his diary and he knows there's a meeting, he's going to say, how much do they want? Not what they, can they do for me, how much do they want? And you've got this, this immediate kind of dilemma that people have got different measures of what's important to them, and that prevents collaboration. And one of the, the interesting ways is to define... If you went to those communities and asked, if you went to the policy community and said, what's important, national government, what's important? The word's there. Create jobs, good investment of tax money, and increased standards of living. I have no doubt that's the level at which government functions. We know that. That's the pre I think the president's 
summary of the president's objectives. Absolutely right. If you go to the science community and you ask them what's important to them, they actually want high international scientific reputations. They also want to explore new science. They really don't want to work with industry because that's difficult. And they would prefer international linkages. What do they get rewarded for? Exactly what's there. Business, on the other hand, would love the framework conditions for innovation to be right. They'd love skilled labor. They would like to work with research institutes, provided those research institutes relate to them. And they, they always would like some finance for investment. Now, you can see why the conversation is pretty difficult between the three. The innovation system works when those three start to set common goals and common objectives. And right now, I think those three bits probably summarize where we are. Now, what is missing, I think, is a middle layer to help facilitate the discussion. It's very hard for the individuals here to get together without a kind of a, an umpire. And, and our country hasn't yet really populated the middle group. Other, other inputs from different parts of the world, you can have a look at them, this idea of innovation hotspots. For example, Stellenbosch could be an innovation hotspot. There's a lot more potential here for people to think together, to define some. Your, your wine industry is a very good example of an innovation society locally. For years, they've had focused research on the requirements of that industry. They've developed processes. They've developed the products, testing, etc., etc. That's a good example. We don't have too many others. The other aspect about innovation is the inventor or the innovator often needs to partner with somebody who has an entrepreneurial flair. They are different types of personalities. In most organizations, they usually get fired because they are mavericks. They don't like rules. They break the rules. They just want to get the job done and they don't fit well in corporate environments. That's why many entrepreneurs end up in their own small companies, because that's the way they can exist. So, whoops, that's interesting. We're about to have lights out. Don't know why. Oh, we've lost, it's lost power somewhere. Okay. All right, we're nearly there. Um, so basically, don't worry about that. Have a look at it. It's a criticism of national systems of innovation as an approach because, in fact, there are some limitations to it. Now, let's look at the role of engineers. This is, this is work that was done by Professor Martin Bell from, from Sussex, and I think it, it, it's worth... Is it dead? Um, we'll go quickly. It's trying to tell me something. Okay, very simple terms. Just he defines the engineering disciplines that he's talking about in this way, and I think nobody seemed to object last night. And what he's saying is, in many situations, your incremental innovation would look more or less like this, that the engineers would be working on setting up basically that sort of structure. They would then 
be drawing from the existing stock of knowledge and part of their role, in fact, is that drawing of, from the knowledge base. What, what in fact, uh, he is really saying is that if you look at the role of an engineer, particularly in, in a company situation, and that's why I felt in reality it's not just an engineer. I think it is very much the people with systems knowledge who would drive processes like that with other engineers. Um, and he then goes on, the next diagram, in fact, I can describe it. It's the same as the previous one, but with instead of just the existing knowledge base, it taps into R&D as well. Um, yeah, let's just carry on. Um, it, it taps into R&D, which I think is entirely correct. If you if you're trying to solve things where you don't have solutions, then you need to tap into the R&D environment. So, same picture, but now you'll see where the R&D fits. It plugs into the knowledge base. So you're not, as it were, you're commissioning certain R&D to, to solve those problems. But now, if you think back to this chasm situation, he extends the argument to say, there is a lot of evidence which says the reason why the research community can't talk to the industry is because the industry does not have the engineers who can actually talk to the R&D. And it's a very interesting concept because we tend to always try and convert the R&D people into what they are not. And we never ask why is it that we can't have this conversation? So he is actually saying, in a company who has engineering and moves into, into design and some aspects of R&D, the communication then becomes much more straightforward. The, 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 the definition of the research that's required is much better defined. And I felt this was, in fact, very appropriate to be a stimulus to your community to say, isn't this a role that systems people would do very, very well, rather than individual engineering disciplines tackling it almost individually? It needs a process to be developed. It also, he also made the point, we need to convince industry that they need to, to employ that type of people with that specific role. And I just felt this was something that was the inverse of the way we've been behaving. We've always tried to create some mechanism without perhaps identifying the real problem is that there's a lack of ability to communicate. The people in business don't talk the same language as the people there. So you need people that can understand that, translate it, and integrate it. So I wanted that to be some food for thought because I think it's perhaps a role where you're underestimating the role you could be playing in the system of innovation. So what are the challenges we face? We've got a good policy. We mustn't criticize it. We've got a group called the National Advisory Council on Innovation. They set up the Innovation Fund, which didn't work particularly well because we tried to base it on fund the researchers 
to help industry, not fund industry to bring the researchers on board. They had system-wide reviews, various organizations got, got significantly changed, and then they developed a series of strategies which I think have been actually quite thoroughly done, but rather poorly understood by, by the people they were designed to, to, to talk to. And unfortunately, I heard a talk on Monday from Tia, and Tia is using the linear model in the designing their new processes, which is a little distressing. This is just the framework again. So I think if we were looking at it, the assumption is often made that because we have research, we have business, we have all the players, that if you say you've got a system of innovation, it's sort of going to happen. And I think our history has been it doesn't sort of happen. Uh, it requires something else. It requires initiative from people like yourselves, from people in different organizations, and very specifically, people in business to get involved. As I say, innovation happens in business. Too often the discussions consist of academics, researchers, and government. And they all sit and agree on everything. And then business comes along and says, what's all this? So we don't involve business enough. Business is secondary. We've got to stop rewarding only academic outputs. Papers are good. They're great. They don't lead to innovation. Patents are great. They also don't lead to innovation unless we know what to do with them. And I think there's a trend now for some of the government agencies to start talking about taking equity. And I just have this incredible vision of an entrepreneur having government as a partner in his business. I do not see this being a particularly satisfactory situation. <laughs> so various plans and various things have been written in documents which you can read, but for example, they say with all this striving for producing PhDs, those PhDs are blind to the needs of science and engineering with an innovation outcome. That's a government document written in 2007, and I haven't seen a single thing change. In other words, the words are right, but we just ignore the words. The thinking's right, we don't do anything with it. And I think, going back to absolute basics, please propagate to everybody that you can find what innovation actually means. All right? The guys you work with, chat to them about this. Ask them what they believe it is. Because until we get people to understand the words, we're going to bluff ourselves. So you can go through some of these. And I think, in fact, we need to really look, if we're serious about this, and I don't think there's an alternative. The world is moving this way. We are only going to go backwards if we do not get some of this culture into our, into our way of thinking. We don't have innovation value chains. We don't look at an industry from beginning to end and ask how do we improve that whole industry. Again, it's a kind of systems thinking gap. So there we go. <laughs> And the little phrase at the bottom says, I have a couple of examples, but you may have had enough already. But if you wanted to take another five minutes, you might find these interesting.
So, but it's up to you. <laughs> okay, and then, but have a, have a look at this. I love this one. And the reason I like it is because I think there's a huge, deep message for South Africa in this. This was presented by Professor Ramesh Mashalka, very famous Indian scientist. He ran their CSIR. He is very prestigious, well-known around the world, but he also has the ability to present a deep message in a very, very simple way. And these are his slides. So he said, innovation is doing things differently, making a big difference, and making the impossible possible. Okay? These are emotive words. This is India. The challenge is including the excluded. Do you think... We have that problem in Africa. I think we have that problem in Africa. So this works for us. The engineering challenge, as he defined it, getting more from less. We've got fixed resources. How can we make those resources do more? But then he added another one. He called it Gandhian engineering. Getting more from less for more. Okay, think about it. This is philosophy we haven't started to use. It's very powerful. Technologies for the poor should be available, affordable, accessible, and appropriate. We've heard those words in South Africa. Here's a challenge. They have 200 million illiterate people in India. At the moment, the current methodologies are reducing that rate at 1.3% per annum, so it's going to take 20 years for everybody to be literate. Does this sound somewhat familiar? But the challenge they set themselves was the one at the bottom. Think of our education system, maths and science. Have we ever sat down and said, we need to solve that in five years? But they added another one, we need to do it for $2 a person. Impossible? Well, put together a team of people with all sorts of skills, across all sorts of disciplines. They focused on learning to read rather than learning alphabets. It worked. They met their target. Scary. A few other thoughts from him. Democratization of innovation. Just as every life is equal, every mind is innovative. And these. An innovator is one who does not know that it cannot be done. And an innovator is one who sees what everyone sees, but thinks what no one else thinks. Very thought-provoking. But here you have people that are thinking that there's a big problem and you've got to attack it in a different way. More of the same is not enough. And you can only do that if you're able to pull together skills from the right sources and really get things to, to work. We have the skills to do this kind of thing. We don't seem to have the nous to tackle problems in this way. And I think that's what systems of innovation are about. That's this collective culture, collective problem solving that we have to get there. So I think that's just, again, just from an industry point of view, Finland 
went bankrupt in about 1990 because the, their main client was the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union disappeared and 30% of their economy disappeared overnight. I'd hate to know what would happen to us if that happened. And they decided at that point that they needed to go on this new agenda of a knowledge-based economy. And this is their approach. For example, their core industry was forestry. But they said, our forestry industry has been doing the same things for generations. What if we get all these different people around a table from all these disciplines and said, what is, how do we make our forestry industry beyond the best? And again, it's that mental process of saying you solve problems by bringing all sorts of disciplines together and using the best from that. So I think that's enough. Those are enough examples, but I think it's just good to see what some other people have done. The challenges in Africa, in South Africa, I believe we actually have the skill. We don't deploy it in a manner that can tackle those sort of problems. So, join the missionaries and let's think how we can contribute to a different type of situation. So thanks very much. Yeah, I think, I think it was a Battelle study and I think they were looking at American companies and how they invest in different parts of the world. So America wasn't wasn't on that list. The US, USA wasn't on that list. It's where US companies are investing money in other countries. That's not my criticism. Um, that, 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 um, let's just go backwards a bit. Um, <laughs> no, no, I, I think it's, um, it's not so much getting a marketable product as opposed to understanding Let's, let's read the words. So they, 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 are not, they are not my words. Um, this was something called the 20-Year Human Capital Plan, which was published in 2007. It says, The current paradigm of the South African National System of Innovation with respect to knowledge worker training is one that favors the classical academic PhD qualification. Emphasis is laid on the upstream phases of the innovation chain in research aimed at producing new knowledge, there is little or no attention paid to training in innovation. And that's the real theme. And I think, I think what, it, what it's saying is PhDs should be doing original work. Correct. But during that process, it is not an obscene concept for people to be persuaded that the work may have some use. Okay? And I think that's, that's, that's the message. And let me give you an example. I, I'll give you a very good example. I happened to do a PhD at a place called Cambridge. Okay, I was very lucky in a laboratory called the Cavendish Laboratory, which has 25, 27 Nobel Prize winners over the years. Very famous place. When I was there, if you did a PhD that had a use, you probably would have been thrown out. All right? Be if it had a use, all right? You would have been seen as not doing deep enough basic work. I went to a reunion last, a year before last, and spoke to a number of PhD students. 
And to a person, every one of them was doing absolutely deep fundamental work. But every one of them was saying, if we can get this right, then we know that this device could do this and that and, and whatever. Their mind is looking for what they could do with their work. It didn't detract from the quality of the work. And I think that's, if I'm reading, it's the mindset is such that people are not thinking about their work having some application. Doesn't mean they have to do it, but they must have a mindset. So that's the way I interpreted that. They are in the words are they are blind to the need of science and engineering with an innovation output. They, they you know, blind. They just don't see it. Look, I, I think you know one one can those lists. I think are just I use them as just a wake up call. You know, it's, it's something to look in the mirror and say it does reflect a situation. I think with regard to 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 engineers. Perhaps the way to look at it is to say, you know, in our whole education of scientists and engineers, seeing this philosophy that I've spoken about tonight is actually the national philosophy. I don't think we educate anybody, be it business particularly, as to the value of engineers and why they need them. You know, most, most businesses see engineers as just an expensive luxury. All right? I, I mean, you know, we don't make full use of them, so actually we won't employ them, unless they are very much an engineering company. But, I mean, you know, if you travel around the world, you'll find, I mean, in Germany, for example, you'll find engineers in nearly every company because they add fantastic value, but the system understands the role they play. So... Perhaps it's one of the, 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 you know, should be one of the goals of organizations like yours to actually write some case studies of the kind of work you do and, and try to, to propagate that to, to some of the young people coming through because they really probably don't really understand. Um, you know, what does an engineer really do? And... and uh, you know, case studies we do too little of, too, too few success stories. We tend to always talk about the bad news. We don't talk about the many successful things, and there are some really successful things. There's some seriously successful, you know, projects that get done. Um, you know, you take industries like Sassel. I mean, they're world leaders. They go around the world. Do we really celebrate what Sassel has achieved? I don't think so. Do we celebrate the engineers that got it there and the chemists? I don't think so. You know? So, the, you know, I, I think it, it's, it's one of, in a knowledge society, there's a better understanding of, of why you need people like this. But, I mean, the, the average message at schools, and I've got some grandkids now, the message is still, you know, mathematics is difficult. I wish I didn't have to do it. And, and, you know, that's almost the story they get told. You know, and that doesn't help. Um, there, there's this belief that these are the difficult subjects. You, you, you avoid them if you can. Whereas the message should be that, you know, life depends on you getting this. You know, you owe it to yourself, your country, to go this way. So, you know, I think the messages we propagate 
become very significant. And of course, the other thing is, do, you, do we use the, the engineers to their best capability, or do we use them as sort of technical support? You know, and, and do people really understand what an engineer can do? Uh, and I think we've got a problem there too. We don't train technicians supporting engineers. No, I, I, I yeah. Look, I, I think everybody has to change to some extent. And, and, you know, you are already in a mode by being a systems person. I'm sure working in teams you regard as necessary and, and a requirement. Um, so you, you already are of a mindset that can actually assist the process much more than I think, you know, we just don't get teams of people together. Um, you know, engineers and scientists don't ever see each other. Um, you know, you look at a university, I mean, you've got the engineering faculty and the science faculty and the business faculty. And, you know, if they, if they meet, it's very accidental. You know, there's, I mean, I know of a program in America where in, in the, um, the sort of, this was in materials engineering, but again, interesting phrase, it was materials engineering and it combined science and engineering. But then they brought the business school in and they, they linked an MBA student to the PhD students doing materials engineering. And during the course of the PhD, the MBA's task was to work out what is the business impact of, of the work that was being done. Fascinating, because they each had a role. It was, they were not interfering with one another, but at least they were, they were starting to ask a different set of questions. And they said what happened was that interaction created often the research being diverted into, with information coming from the person doing the MBA by saying, well, if you could achieve this, then the product could do that. And suddenly, you know, the research was, was b receiving a different kind of direction. So I think, I think if, we, if we think about it, everybody has to kind of change a little bit. But you may already have an advantage because you've, you've already taken a step forward. That's why I'm excited to talking to, to systems engineers because I think you have a unique position. Uh, and maybe you're very under-exploited in that position. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I, I have no doubt. And, and I think the point is we don't have environments where those discussions have happen often enough. Um, I mean, in Finland, for example, their, their system equivalent to this technology innovation agency almost inevitably actually funds business to drive the projects on condition that, that the projects involve the research community. But the driver is in business because that's where the action happens, where the timescales get set and everything else. And they, they then spend the money, often not in their own environment, they spend it where they need to, um, creating a team. But the, at the end of the day, the buck stops with the guy who's job it is to turn it into something. Now, we have the opposite philosophy. We tend to fund 
an agency, a government agency, to drive a project for business. But they don't have the knowledge of what business needs, and therefore it, it becomes a complex re relationship. Yeah. Um, let, me, let me try the failure thing. Um, one of the lessons that I learned from working with, with Finland, and, and you know they have done remarkably well, um, is they have very honest processes of review and learning. And they're very open about it too. When projects are finished, irrespective of whether they were success or failure, they usually bring in a team of knowledgeable people who are completely objective and independent of anybody who worked on the project to do a full evaluation of what went right, what went wrong. And those reports usually are pretty much in the public domain. And, and the reason for that is that when they start another project, they can build on that learning. So they actually are, and that's why I made the comment about beneficiation. I'm pretty willing to say that our current beneficiation thrusts are not learning a thing because we never reviewed the ones in the 50s and 60s. Um, no, you know, there's a whole book written on Columbus Steel and all the trials and tribulations of trying to make stainless steel in South Africa. Phenomenal learning. They've done a great job. I bet you the people writing the beneficiation policies right now have not read that book. They should read that book. There's more sort of, you know, hard facts of life in, in that. Um, I think... Uh, in, in terms of, uh, of just the, the diversity factor, I think we do have a huge advantage. Um, however, that requires us to understand the power of teams. And, and as long as we do not have proper teams, and you know, there are many institutions, for example, which, I mean, that operate in silos. When they form a collaborative project team, I don't believe they ever form a team. What they do is they form a subcontract relationship with each other. They're not a team. They're all trying to get their slice of the cake and ring fence it and make sure the money doesn't get taken away by anybody else. That's not a team. So I think, I think you know, the diversity factor becomes powerful if everybody is given an equal opportunity to contribute and you have an honest and, and very open kind of Team, team relationship. So again, it comes down to, you know, how well do we behave? Um. <laughs> the reason why yeah, I take your point. Yeah, no, it, I think, I think, I, I agree with you. I mean, I've given two talks and you know, I mean, I know you earn the bald head, but um, at the end of the day, there are other people that that perhaps need to be having this discussion because they've got the 20 years or 30 years ahead of them. So I think it's a very valid point. And, and most of the meetings you go to are the, the senior people. And the youngsters don't get to hear the, the messages. So it's it's, I don't know how you solve it, but it's a very valid point. <laughs> oh, thank you.
Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks.